I got a call the other day from a guy who was on his way to a friend who had just experienced something fairly traumatic. And he sort of dropped in my world out of nowhere. And he was asking me what to say, what to do. And I, yes. I, I felt so helpless. I had that guy in my car the other day when he got the phone call about a loss where he was sitting in the passenger seat of my car. All of a sudden, the world has changed. And my mind is sort of racing going, does anyone ever orient you to like what you're supposed to say first? Totally. I just felt the need to flee. Like, I didn't know the right thing to say, but I knew I didn't want to say the wrong thing. This is Alan Arnold, and you're listening to the Ransomed Heart Podcast. That's the voices of Sam Eldridge, Blaine Eldridge. And we wanted to bring you into a podcast that both of them led recently with Dan Allender on the topic of trauma. But before we do, just want to tell you a little bit more about their world and what we're going to listen to today. And Sons is the team at Ransomed Heart, which is tasked with reaching younger guys, nominally guys in their late teens to guys in their early 30s across about a 15-year spread. But what we really wanted to do was build a platform where we were reaching young guys with the Ransomed Heart worldview, with a kingdom worldview. So we developed a magazine that comes out quarterly. It's long-form content on how do you become a person of maturity over time. One of our taglines is initiation for the young man's soul. And then after doing the magazine and making some films, we realized that one of the best sort of vehicles for that content was actually going to be a weekly podcast. Our vision for the podcast was dividing into three categories. The first being interviewing older men and women that have something to offer, so an expert in their fields. They, they have wisdom. They have expertise. It's a way of feeling like it's not just fellow 20-somethings trying to lead each other through and find the ancient paths on our own. A second category we do is exploration into our world, into our field, into what are the effects of our current age on a human being technology, postmodernism, things that we use as kind of common parlance, but don't necessarily know where they come from or what the implications are. The third category is our own lives, because if we're not living it out, then it's not worth having. It's not genuine. And that's kind of where we pull back the curtain and talk about our young marriages, ways things are working, things that aren't, and ways that we're trying to, to learn and grow throughout it. Today's podcast, Dan Allender with the two of you, and the topic is trauma. And before we go into that, how did you end up deciding to do a podcast on trauma? Why was that a hot topic? Honestly, it just came out of a series of experiences between Sam and I where we found ourselves as the first person in line after some truly catastrophic event had happened inside our community. The loss of an immediate loved one in the family, or it was some sort of home invasion of a friend. And it was suddenly finding ourselves in these situations where we're like, oh my goodness, someone has just called us to say that they just lost their brother. What do we say? What's the playbook for responding to a person who is in crisis? Yeah, it feels like if anything, the world is just heating up in the realm of pain and trauma and the damage that's being done. We wanted to have a conversation that was both hopeful and helpful. I mean, I wanted like the, give me the few basic things I can know without doing grad school or becoming a counselor myself, what I can offer to friends in my world. That's good and that's needed. We're going to listen in now to the podcast with Sam, Blaine, and Dan Allender. 
So the topic of the day is trauma. You know, when you get on an airplane, right, there's like a safety card in the seat back where, you know, all complex action is reduced to kind of these potato-like figures getting up from their chairs and making the right number of turns to get off a flaming airplane. And there's kind of the, hey, you're in crisis. What can we actually give you that only gross motor functions, only things that you might actually be able to do? And what we want to ask you some questions around is a relational equivalent of that as it relates to interacting with trauma and interacting with people who have just experienced trauma. Because we have opportunities to have conversation with guys all the time about what's actually being required of them in their life and world. And given what people have to interact with, guys in their early 20s are having to have conversations with people who have just been assaulted or with a friend who says, my friend died last night. And it feels like there's just no preparatory kit that gives a person any basic tools of how do you engage when all of a sudden, in the course of a very ordinary day, you find yourself interacting with a person who has just experienced a trauma of some kind? It's a beautiful question uh, and one that you can be assured uh, the phone call is not too far from now. Uh, No one escapes having to address this question. So honored to be in that mix with you to begin to ponder that. I think there are three things you need to say to yourself before you take the trip to, to be with them. You know, you're on the phone, you're hearing about a tragedy, a crisis, a trauma. Don't ask the person if they want you to be there. Tell them you will be there. Don't ask the person in trauma to make decisions. I think that's one of the first things that you don't want to do. So if they called you to tell you, unless they literally are a continent away, but even then, there are moments where, depending on the friendship, the nature of the context, you, you hop on a plane, you you stay on the phone, or you drive to be with them. Don't ask what they want. Tell them what you believe they need, and that will relieve them of having to make the awkward decision of saying, yeah, I need you to come. That feels actually sort of counterintuitive to me, given my experiences, because conversation several years ago with a friend whose dad had just passed away. It wasn't totally unexpected, but it was still very sudden. And he was in California. I was living in Washington, still a close friend. There was, for me, this experience of the precariousness of, wow, what what do you need right now? And what would be helpful? And so the idea that rather than trying to make them make decisions, simply operating out of what I think would be good for him feels like it runs against what I would instinctively do, which is probably do nothing and not know what to say. That's the complication. You, you've got to know the person you're engaging. If your father were in the middle of a severe heartache right now, I wouldn't hesitate to get on a plane and arrive and be there in the middle of it. There are times where your arrival actually causes more consternation and complexity. So you you have to know the person you're engaging and you need to know the context of the tragedy. And once you begin to assess that, then you need to begin to make decisions on their behalf. And I'd rather be told no than to actually explore what is it that you currently need from me at this point. 
So I'd rather say to that friend, I'll be on a plane I, uh, and, and I'll be there within 24 hours, then have them be able to say, actually, no, I, I need you to be on the phone with me three or four times today and tomorrow in the next few days just to help me think through what I need to do. Let them clarify what they need but you initially take the response of being able to move in a direction that's helpful for them. Yeah, that's so good. Um, I feel like my indication as well in those moments would be the fear of not knowing what to do or how to offer well, I think would sort of lend itself to withdrawing and to be like, well, I'm so glad you called. Um, I'm so sorry that this happened to you. And I just feel that like, pull back for fear of not being able to handle the situation once I arrived, right? Like we've, I don't know how many phone calls we've gotten from friends who are like in the car going from A to B, like they've made the right choice to go. But then there's the moment of what happens next? Like, what do, what do I offer? What do I, what do I do now that I have made the right choice of moving towards them? Let's just assume you've got at least an hour before you're going to be with them you know, there are three questions I would ask myself. First of all, what does this person uniquely need from me now? Not, not from humanity, not from their mother, father. What do they need from me now? So that really forces me to ask, who is that person and who am I in their life? So once you've asked those two questions, who are they and who am I to them? Then you can begin that process of asking Jesus very clearly, what do I need to offer? What is it that I uniquely bring? And I'll have to just say these words. I'm operating right now out of the story of a dear friend who committed suicide in early December. So all of this is very, very real. Um, I mean, I was at a conference. Uh, I Becky called me to let me know that my dear friend had committed suicide, and I literally crumpled on the floor. My legs gave way. I mean, literally within minutes, I'm, I'm in the middle of a kind of agony that I've just not known for a long time. So know that as I'm telling and talking about this, I'm talking from the experience of making the phone call the next morning to interact with the family, and I couldn't leave the conference but I could have been there days after. And the widow basically said to Becky and I, I need you to come later. I don't need you to come now. But the offer was there for us to be there. The next morning, I talked to one of my friend's sons. And that was probably one of the hardest phone calls I've made in the last two, three years. But I pondered him. I know him. I love him. And I knew what he needed me to do which was what I wanted to do, and that is literally to weep. Uh, and we were on the phone together probably for the first five minutes, doing nothing more than weeping. Hearing his tears and my tears uh, held us together, at least for a period of time. And then he needed me, but it also is true for me. I was enraged that this dear friend took his life, never called me, didn't call his sons, and he needed for me to be enraged. And we both swore a lot. What particular configurations of words are not probably appropriate even for Ann's sons. Uh, but let's just say we swore a lot 
he needed that. I needed that. So you have to ask, what am I hearing from Jesus that this person needs in the moment? And I think what you'll find by doing that kind of work, it's preparatory work to be able to enter into a situation in which there's not a lot you can do right, but there are a number of things that you can do poorly. And we need to at least name a few of those to make sure that you don't offer advice. Good God, don't offer advice. Don't offer trite platitudes. Like all things will work together for the good or there's something better ahead or God's in control. Don't don't offer platitudes and don't correct what, what I'll call trauma logic. I mean, when a person's in the middle of this kind of loss, they're going to say all sorts of things that are either nonsensical or you know are not consistent with what they deeply believe. It's not your time to correct their logic, to correct their biblical way of thinking about the world. It's a time to enter their loss. And we can talk a little bit more about what to do in the middle of that. But if you're clear what not to do, it will limit what you can do, but it will keep you from creating more harm. I'm sort of relieved to hear you name those things because as a starting point, it's easier to not do something than to do the positive action. And I think simply being equipped with don't start giving advice, don't begin trying to correct their worldview. And I was with, you know, a close friend this year who got tragic news while we were driving together to go mountain biking. Next thing you know, he's hyperventilating in the passenger seat. You know, fortunately, there's enough woofer background to know that it's hyperventilation that unless it hits a certain place, he's going to be okay. But you can ask Jesus of, what one thing can you communicate to me right now that your job right now is to speed in this car? And, <laughs> and that, but that was it. It was like, okay, I don't know the next thing. And I don't know, you know, the right time to suggest that my friend change his breathing pattern or he's going to pass out. But I can like stomp on the gas and begin partnering with the way that God is going to rescue. I don't know how, but it's, you know, one thing at a time. So something I'm struck by is that in both those situations and the one you're describing, Dan, and the one you're describing, Blaine, there's a call to be actually more human and more present and, and be witnessing them and to be almost mirroring what they're experiencing as you can, not to artificially generate that. Their experience, obviously, as a firsthand receiver of the trauma is very different than yours. But there is this like harmony if you are operating well in it. I feel like I would need to temper my own lest it overwhelm them or add to. And it seems like that's not actually the case. I think it's a brilliant point, again, that you have to hear. If you're talking to somebody who's really thinking about taking their life, you, you don't want to hesitate to say, look, you've said a few sentences just now, like there's no point to live. How am I going to go on after this? Don't fear asking the question, are you even now thinking about doing harm to yourself. Don't hesitate. Bring yourself to the issue. And that's where you've got to bring your hurt to their hurt. Hurt will draw hurt. And so instead of just thinking of it as empathy, empathy is a kind of, I feel on your behalf. What the son of my friend who took his life needed, I believe, was to hear, I am beyond heartbroken. 
I'm confused to the nth degree how my friend, who I was just with probably three weeks before he took his life, how my friend kept me out of his suffering. But also, he needed to hear rage. So, tears, confusion, rage. I wasn't overwhelming him with myself. I was joining him in his own suffering, and he was joining me in mine. In that sense, it was a partnership. I love that word, Blaine, and I love the way that you're putting it, Sam. It's a kind of mirroring residence that allows us to, in some sense of the word, recreate connection because tragedy always divides. I mean, that's one of the brilliant works of evil is that tragedy does what the name Satan brings. It literally brings accusations. And the word diabolos, devil, is the word division. So, evil brings division and accusation immediately in the midst of a trauma. Like when I heard my friend died, I literally feel divided from my body. I feel divided from what I know to be good and true. And I also felt this deep sense of accusation. Why didn't he ask? I'm accusing him, but I'm also accusing myself. Why didn't I do more than what I knew to do at that time? You've got to stop that process of division. You've got to stop the process of accusation. And by simply pouring on the gas, Blaine, you were saying to your friend, I'm with you and I will be your ally to see you through to what needs to be done at this point. You said there are three questions I'd love to know. And the first question that you named is, who am I to this person? What do they need from me? And that second question is, who am I to the person? Meaning, I have a unique role in certain people's lives. This friend I've known for almost 35 years. I did more conferences in his church than I've done in any other church in the country. I saw his boys grow up. I'm like a beloved uncle to those boys. And that's where knowing who that person is, knowing who I am to that person, that third question is, and what does Jesus want me to bring? And what I heard from Jesus when I began praying in that phone call was, he needs to hear your confusion and anger. And it was there. It was deeply there and not difficult to bring. If I'd heard Jesus say, he needs nothing more now than for you to listen, then I would have held my confusion. I would have held my anger uh, and simply been in many ways a receiving end of all that he needed to speak. But at this point, he needed me to speak for him to be able to find some of the words that would help him begin to move into the heartache of literally the day before his father took his life. When we were thinking of having this conversation and the questions we wanted to ask you, obviously the first events in mind were the ones of, you know, sudden death of a brother-in-law, like crisis in a friend's home and you get the phone call. It is the truly like high-level stuff. Another story that comes to mind in this vein is, you know, when we get texted by my parents that, hey, your mom's going to need a surgery on her hip this summer and out go the summer plans. And you can just hear all of the loss that that actually entails while it is going to, you know, eventually return a lot of mobility. It was, they're so crestfallen. And there's that interesting thing of in most people's lives, I feel like unless I am the close friend or the brother or, 
you know, the mentor, unless I have some gilded role in a person's life, it's just going to be more complicated for me to engage with a person who is in trauma or with a person's suffering. I think of that story because I'm a son. In fact, I'm one of several sons who happens to live in this city. And when you talk about asking Jesus, I'm just becoming aware of, it really will work. And these categories are incredibly helpful. But if you are actually able to ask Jesus for, you know, simple advice or the next thing, he knows the human heart very well. And in that case, he suggested to M and I that we, you know, pick up beer and go have a toast with dad, knowing what that was going to mean for him. But there still is, even though we're not an authority, we're not a peer, we're not a whatever it looks like would be the one to step into that role. But we actually still did have a response out of our walk with God from the position we were in. It's, again, so important to underline, like after my friend died, all three of my children called me within 24 hours. And each one of them brought their unique self to the process. Um, My son swore. My two daughters each differently asked the question, what did this man mean to you? We know him, we've met him, but we want to hear again what he meant to you. It sounds almost like they're asking me to walk on jagged glass. And in some sense, when they asked that question, I found myself wanting to go, it's too soon. But I wasn't asked to give a, a long epitaph. They were just inviting me to name in a sentence or two what the agony I was actually entering. And what you find, if I can just, again, get a little techie here with regard to the brain, when you're in trauma, the right hemisphere just floods you with images. Uh, It's more like shards of experience and senses. Your left hemisphere, pretty much, that controls language, goes offline. And both girls operate in worlds in which they deal with trauma daily. And they knew that if I could begin to talk, there would be not so much a relief from the sorrow, but that there would actually be a naming of the process, therefore a growing cohesion, a growing movement toward, in one sense, integration of both hemispheres. And it's what happened. I needed somebody just to talk with briefly about what this dear friend had meant to me. And in about five, six minutes of talking, I I found my heart more at home. And I think in some ways knowing, no, bring beer, sit and just talk for a little bit, uh, at least with regard to my kids, their questions, their anger, their ferocity on my behalf just felt like uh, an incredible gift Now, we're not talking about the trauma of the parent. We're just talking about all people suffering. You've got to be asking the question, what do they need? Who am I? What does Jesus want me to bring? And as you address those three issues, as long as you don't do the stupid stuff, then you're going to be in the midst of a world in which you don't know what to do. And you've got to own that. You don't know what to do. I mean, I've been doing this for almost 40 years. And even still, when I made my phone call to that child, I didn't know what to do. So you just have to know when you're in the middle of tragedy, there are no real rules other than a few don'ts. But now you're going to have to give yourself over to the process 
to be asking through the entire encounter what is best on their behalf. Sometimes literally a five-minute phone call is a hundred times more worthwhile than an hour-long conversation. You need to know what timing is best on behalf of that person. And you can't ask it. You have to sense it. You have to make risks. Uh, You have to be willing to be wrong. And if you are, I'll tell you, just your heart to have made the phone call, to have stepped into the process, already stands you so much apart from the crowd. Because most people want to escape tragedy. It's the call of a Christian, literally, to run into the middle of it. So we're just going to pause right there. This is going to be a two-part series. We will pick up next week with part two. We'll see you next week.